Hi, I'm Cop Thorne MacDonald, and this Wisdom Page podcast episode is titled The Identity Delusion. The content is adapted from Chapter 4 of my book, Toward Wisdom. In Chapter 1 of Toward Wisdom, I refer to the ability to see the underlying unity as a characteristic of wisdom. Here I'm saying that our failure to see that unity results from a delusion, albeit an almost universal one. Albert Einstein had this to say, A human being is a part of the whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings, as something separated from the rest kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest us. Most of us have spent our entire lives thinking of the universe as outer environment. We've always considered persons to be separate and distinct beings or objects. I look at you and you look at me and yes, her sense of sight confirms it. We are separate beings. Or are we? The evolutionary view of what is going on in the universe bases its case for unity on the unity of physical process. In this view, the universal process is the one basic entity. We humans are simply localized nodes of process, nodes that happen to be aware. There is, of course, just one real situation involving the nature and relationship of person and universe. But there are various ways of viewing that situation, various mental models of it. Here we are concerned with two of these models. I'll call our normal way of looking at things the object model. It's the one that Einstein called a delusion. Most of us are prisoners of that model. To free ourselves, we don't need to abandon that model completely, but we do need to be able to switch to the second model, the unitive model, in circumstances where it is more appropriate. When we view the situation from our usual sense-oriented perspective, we see the familiar object model. We tend to ignore our links with the rest of the universe because they don't generate loud sensory messages. We find it natural to view human beings as isolated, independent entities. But when we stand back and consider our human situation in context, consider it from the perspective of the universe as a whole, we see a very different picture. We see atoms from the primordial explosion and additional atoms constructed inside the stars of the universe, making their way to the newly formed Earth. We then see a lengthy evolutionary process. During that process, the means developed to direct roughly 10 to the 28th, that's like a 1 with 28 zeros after it, of these primordial and star-forged atoms at a time into temporary, mobile, intelligent, human-shaped pieces of universe. We might call this the structural connection. These intelligent chunks of the universe are also tied to the process in other ways. 
The energy connection provides them with continuous supplies of energy they need to think and to do. Solar energy is intercepted by green growing things that convert it into chemical energy. These plants, directly or indirectly, supply each human subsystem with stored solar energy. They also supply other chemicals needed for building and repairs. Because some materials taken in are not used, and because internal processes generate unwanted chemicals, each subsystem also has its waste connection with the larger process. These universe subsystems need continuous supplies of oxygen, and they generate quantities of CO2. The atmosphere of Earth provides this gas connection almost everywhere continuously. The wider universe is also linked to its human localizations with an information connection. The senses provide one-way information flow to the subsystem from the larger system, including its other subsystems. The action connection involves a flow in the opposite direction, from subsystems to system at large. This reverse flow includes not only coded communications, but all other forms of doing as well. No, people aren't the independent entities they think they are. Each of us has six real, absolutely necessary links connecting us with the rest of the universe. Structural, energy, waste, gas, information, and action connections. Human beings are open systems, which is another way of saying that we are not independent, but are parts of a larger system. Fortunately for personal mobility, these subsystem links have been provided without need for physical cables and hoses. Because of that, they are like the other subtle, silent realities around us. They are all too easy to ignore. Yet these connections with the larger universe are just as real as if they had been made with six-foot-long pieces of wire and tubing. We humans are, in a concrete and non-mystical sense, intelligent nodes of the larger universe. There is an analogy that might prove helpful. The relationship of the universe to its people outcrops is similar to that of the ocean and its wave outcrops. We watch an individual wave rise up from the continuum, from the background of ocean. It rises to a white-capped peak which bubbles, churns, and froths. For a moment there is an intense localized activity. This spot in the ocean has its own active uniqueness. Countless independent lines of cause and effect have intersected here to create for a brief moment a unique one-time occurrence, a localized intensification in the overall process of ocean. In another moment, the frothing and bubbling subsides, the peak recedes, and the uniqueness diffuses back into the background of ocean process from which it arose a moment before. Soon, its atoms will have spread and become part of other ripples and swells and white caps. In the same sense that a wave is ocean, a person is universe. Alan Watts used another analogy. He said, quote, 
We do not come into this world, we come out of it as leaves from a tree, unquote. The universe configures itself into nodes of awareness and action much as a tree configures itself into buds and leaves. A tree's individual leaves come in the spring and drop off in the fall. We have no trouble identifying the tree as the organism with buds and leaves as parts of that organism. So it is with human beings. Persons are buds of universe that stay for a season. Then after having made their contribution to the whole, they, like the leaves, disintegrate. It didn't take me long to feel intellectually comfortable with this second model of person-universe, this unitive model. The challenge, of course, is to feel it so deeply in the guts that we live our lives by it. The object model is our easy-to-see built-in model because it helped our ancestors to survive. But times have changed. We find ourselves today with those tremendous technology-based powers capable of destroying as well as building. For us, it is the unitive view that has survival value. Gregory Bateson once admitted that he found it difficult to think in this unitive way. But at the same time, he said that we shouldn't trust policy decisions of people who are not able to. The main thing blocking the unitive view in the assessment of several spiritual traditions is inappropriate identification. Particularly troublesome is identification with the body and with mind contents. The Buddha called this identification wrong view of self. I call it the identity delusion. The problem is this. Associated with awareness is a primal sense of identity, a sense of existing, an I am sense. Evolution led humans and other beings to associate this sense of identity not with awareness itself, but with the objects of awareness, most often with the body and with mind contents. Later, human cultures encouraged other identifications, identifications with ethnic origin, social role, organization, nation, etc. Any identification lends power to the object of identification. The extra survival power that accompanied identification with the local body-mind was useful tens of thousands of years ago when the conditions of life were much more marginal than they are in the industrial nations today. It had survival value for those individuals in those times and thus for the species. When you feel that you are the local body-mind and only the body-mind, you tend to devote large amounts of energy and attention to enhancing and preserving the personal self. This improves the chances of survival for that particular body-mind and thus the chances of its genes being passed on. This was great for the species, but unpleasant for the poor individual who paid the price in fear, anger, lust, jealousy, and other forms of emotional pain. Awareness is primal reality, but our minds have never realized that. Instead of identifying with the underlying ground of mind, the primal sense of identity usually becomes attached to mind contents. We get lost in that show called Daily Living, or an engrossing movie, or those shows called Dreams that Awareness watches while the body sleeps. 
We project the sense of reality that belongs with awareness onto something else, onto whatever awareness is aware of. Are patterns of light on a movie screen me? No, but I've been fooled into thinking so many times as my heart rate escalated and the adrenaline pumped. A movie is information on a physical screen translated into informational patterns of firing neurons which then modulate awareness. The experience of everyday life is similar. Information from external and internal sources translated into patterns of firing neurons is experienced by awareness. Does it make sense to identify with any of this? Yet we always have. The ordinary everyday I is a phantom created by the processes of perceiving, reacting emotionally, and thinking. Our brain creates the ego, the I, the voice of the system to represent the local process in its dealings with the external world. This I has many aspects. It is the rationalizing verbosity of the left brain hemisphere. It is reactivity in all its forms. It is the mind's resistance to whatever is happening in the present moment. All the elements that together make up the illusion of a separate self, the identification-tinged reactions, emotions, and judgments, are simply informational events within the subjective field. It is the subjective field itself, not its contents, that is the natural home of that sense of self-identity. We have been confused about what is subject, what is object, and what is me. Giving up this local process identification is difficult for several reasons. One is perceptual. We see ourselves as separate beings. We don't see all those absolutely necessary connections with the larger process. Another is the strength of the ego, the strength of the self-concept. We find it difficult to become little children. The ego does not want to die. The ego is attached to its accomplishments. It doesn't like to see the causal links between those accomplishments and outside influences that it cannot take credit for. Good genes, good environment, information picked up from elsewhere, opportunities set up by external forces, etc. It won't admit that everything that happens is, in fact, the universe's accomplishment the accomplishment of the self at large, if you will. The spiritual teachers of old were making perfect sense when they told us to abandon our egos and devote ourselves to the Great One. Their message in today's words might be, face facts, see what is. Identifying with the subsystem is a meaningless dead end. To be significant, you must go beyond your preoccupation with the body-mind subsystem and act in the service of the larger process. A leaf preoccupied with its own leafness and neglectful of its function as tree would not be actualizing its potential as a leaf-shaped subsystem of tree. Human beings preoccupied with their own illusion of separateness and individuality and neglectful of their function as universe, are not actualizing their potential as human-shaped subsystems of universe. 
The identity delusion not only causes external problems, it also damages us psychologically. It causes needless suffering. Each infant and young child undergoes the experience of individuation. According to psychologists who study these things, we start life with no sense of separateness and during our first few years gradually arrive at the consensus view of identity which then remains with us. We are not totally happy with this new view, however, and throughout our lives there are times when we unconsciously try to go back. When we do things in an attempt to regain that feeling of connectedness that we lost, we use various names for the place we seek. Happiness, home, belonging, relationship, community. But they are all substitutes and aliases. What we seek at the deepest level is our lost sense of oneness. Our lost sense of identity with everything. The finding lies in abandoning all the external searches and recognizing that the psychological experience of individuation that we underwent while a necessity for conducting everyday life, led us into a delusion. The finding lies not in regression, in some attempt to create a substitute womb. It lies in transcendence, in recognizing the delusion for what it is. It lies in seeing clearly for the first time the identity that has always existed, it lies in making a gestalt flip to that other perspective on our situation, to the other way of seeing and interpreting the data of life and existence. Our most fundamental or true identity resides in the permanent medium of existence, not in any of the temporary informational modulations that overlay the medium. We are awareness energy. We are awareness energy, the eternal ground of subjective and objective being. The Garden of Eden story can be interpreted in light of the delusion. When, as small children, we began to acquire knowledge, we lost our prior sense of oneness. During our first few years of life, we encountered the tree of knowledge. We became immersed in it and eventually adopted the whole informational world of distinction and difference. The apple is the mythical symbol for that informational world, and the normal child ends up grasping it, ends up making a not totally happy choice for separate existence. We adults can't undo the lives we live to date, and that isn't the answer even if we could. Much of the knowledge we acquire about the informational world while under the delusion spell is appropriate and useful. There are indications, too, that it may not be possible to make it through the first four levels in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. The physiological, security, belongingness, and esteem need levels without a strong ego identification. We may need to build an ego before we can destroy it. But we can look back at what has happened, we can see that the individuation process, that metaphorical eating of the fruit, did delude us into abandoning our prior sense of oneness. And we can entertain the possibility that the sense of oneness still lies within us, 
just waiting to be recognized. Each of us knows what it's like to feel happy, to feel at home, to feel a sense of belongingness. We just need to claim those feelings as legitimately ours, here, now. In the past we have looked at happiness, feeling at home and belongingness as goals to be attained through externals, through the search for pleasure, possessions, the perfect house, the right community, the perfect relationship. As long as we continue to connect those mental states with external searching and finding, we'll never more than briefly glimpse them. If, however, we recognize happiness, feeling at home, and belongingness as characteristics of a subjective sense of oneness, then we can drop the external chase and reclaim our intrinsic connectedness right here, right now. In reality, the delusion did not destroy the pre-existing oneness. The primal unity was never broken. An illusion of separateness arose. Therefore, there is no need to mount a search for the primal oneness. We simply need to recognize it, to recognize it. In future podcast episodes, we'll look at what is involved in doing this. Cultures, too, induce people to make misidentifications. In the recruit who enlists, goes through military training, and then to war, the subjective I may become identified more strongly with the nation, or the nation's ideology, than with body and mind contents. Identification with the body may even be abandoned completely, causing this soldier to willingly give his life for his country. In some cultures, an intense ethnic or religious identity is similarly encouraged and developed. Cultural influences sometimes induce the subjective eye to identify strongly with a life role or some slot in the societal or organizational structure. If we ask a person who they are, we often get a role-identified response, don't we? I'm a feature, the president, a housewife. Similarly, in people who are intensely involved with one aspect of life for a prolonged period, the subjective eye may identify with that aspect. Out of such situations can emerge strong identifications with a particular gender, sexual orientation, subculture, or institution. A case can be made that this mechanism of arbitrary identification now threatens the whole species. Arthur Kessler, Eric Fromm, and other researchers into the causes of war have fingered the identification phenomenon as a fundamental troublemaker. Identification with nation or race results in a we-they, in-group, out-group division, often having deadly ramifications. Some level of respect for one's nation and ethnic ancestry is fine, but national governments frequently go to great lengths to make these identifications intense and binding. The means employed include reinforcements such as pledges of allegiance, rituals involving flags and royalty, reverence for national heroes, a too positive portrayal of the nation in the news media, and blatant lies about the outgroup. 
There is also likely to be punishment, even torture and death in some countries, for those who fail to identify with the nation and its aspirations. Every strong identification other than the identification with all or the underlying one has the potential to cause trouble, to down-level the process. Here I include identification with person, nation, race, gender, community, and organization. All of these lesser identifications create an in-group and an out-group, a we and a they, an us and a them, a me and a you. Inherent in these lesser identifications are seeds of divisiveness and local advantage. Inherent in identification with being, with all, with the one, are seeds of general well-being and overall up-leveling. That ends the take on the identity delusion which I presented in Chapter 4 of my book, Toward Wisdom. Thanks for listening, and check out the many wisdom-related resources available on the Wisdom page. It's at www.cop.com. I'll spell that out, www.cop.com. Bye for now.